Jacob's Wells Media presents Strange Tales from Humble Life by John Ashworth Narrated by John McDonough Preface The reader may rest assured that the narratives contained in this volume are substantially true. To this many persons now living in the neighborhood can testify. The names mentioned are real names, both of persons and places. Some of them have again arisen from my connection with the chapel for the destitute. I am a tradesman and make no pretension to literary ability. I wish to acknowledge the goodness of God and to be very thankful that he condescends to use me in any way as a medium of good to others. And to him my prayer still is, Hold thou my right hand. John Ashworth, Broadfield, Rochdale, January 1st, 1866. George. Amongst the many callers at my house and office during the past year, there was one young man who, like most beggars, tried to look as sheepish as possible. Pulling off his hat and looking to the ground with a pitiable whine, he said, If you please, will you relieve me? What is your trade, my young man? I asked. A cabinet maker, sir, was his answer, still whining. What age are you? I again asked. Six and twenty, sir. Are you in good health? Yes, sir, but I cannot get work, still whining. I had been standing on the doorstep in my backyard during this conversation, but stepping down, I stood beside him and, taking off my hat, said, Now, my young man, look at me. Then, holding down my head and trying to look as pitiable and sheepish as he did, I, in the same doleful whine, said, If you please, will you relieve me? If you please, will you relieve me? Then, looking him right in the face, I asked him what he thought of me. But he was too much astonished to speak. Then, putting on my hat and requesting him to do the same, I said, My young man, here you are in good health and strength, with a good trade and work plentiful, and you know it. Yet you are sniffling and whining at people's doors with your, Please, will you relieve me? Why, man, if you had the spirit of a sparrow, you would never so degrade yourself. Hold up your head, shake yourself, look into God's blue sky and be a man. Here is sixpence, and now let that be the last money you ever beg. Work, man, work, and no more whining. Whistle and sing and work and be happy. I thought for a moment that he would have refused the sixpence. His face was red with indignation, and when he did take it, he returned no thanks, but walked rather quickly away. About four months after, the same young man called again, 
and gently moving his hat, asked with a smile if I knew him. I do not, my young friend, I replied. Do you remember giving a young man that came to your back door begging, a good blowing up, and mimicking him, whining, and saying, Please, will you relieve me? Yes, I think I do. Well, sir, I am that young man. And look, sir, I am now worth six pounds, all got by working, not whining and begging. I got employment the same day, and every hour that terrible whine and please will you relieve me has been ringing in my ears. Oh, I could have shot you that day, but you did me a great kindness, for I did shake myself and look into God's blue sky and work. I have never been in a public house since, for it was there I learned to be idle, and I am returning to my parents a new man. I wished first to call and tell you. And now, Mr. Ashworth, I beg you will serve every young man as you served me, for it will be the best thing you can do for them. Good day, sir, and thank you for what you have done for me. What a mercy for this young man that the iron bands of indolence were snapped before they had forever bound him in their fatal coils. A few months or years might have dragged him into the abyss of shame, infamy, and crime, inseparable from a life of idleness. For idleness is a self-inflicted curse, a sin against God and man, the parent of almost every evil. Its victims are legion. George, the principal subject of this narrative, was one of them and I pray that this sketch of his life may be a warning to many. George, in his early life, and after he was married, was by trade a handloom cotton weaver, at one time a good business. He resided in the neighbourhood of Rochdale, where handloom weaving, both cotton and woollen, constituted the principal occupation of the inhabitants and by which many of the careful and industrious have risen to great wealth. But George, like many weavers of this period, would only work three or four days a week, however much pieces might be required by his employers, for the more labour was wanted, the less he cared about it. Like thousands of such characters, then as now, he had the greatest difficulty to tell what to do with the Sunday. The day God has given for special blessings hung the most heavily on his hands. Most of this precious day he spent in bed until he became so tired that he got up to rest. Towards evening, if the night was too light for other purposes, he would get his pack of cards, and go out amongst his companions, drinking and card-playing. This card-playing was to George what it has been to many, both rich and poor, high and low, vulgar and polished, old and young. A terrible besetment, bringing in its train untold evils. It is one of Satan's principal snares, and specially adapted to the indolent, 
thoughtless and profligate. There is an old Spanish proverb, If Satan finds a man idle, he sets him to work. George was often found idle, for besides lounging in bed the most of the Sunday, he seldom went to work on the Monday. He would go miles to a foot-race, dog-race or dog-fight, where he was sure to meet with the most idle of the country, for like and like always go together. Towards Tuesday noon or Wednesday morning, he began thinking about his loom, and his poor wife, besides doing her own weaving and housework, had very frequently to help him with his piece by working during the night. The wife of George was one of the most melancholy-looking creatures I ever saw. She was tall, thin, with high cheekbones, black hair, and had once been good-looking. She was cleanly in her habits, and I will remember her principal dress consisted of a bedgown, then generally worn, a quilted green worsted petticoat, a white linen cap with full screen, a crimson cloak, and black bonnet. She seldom entered any of the neighbors' houses, and seemed to avoid company, except when she attended a cottage service held in the neighborhood on Sunday evenings. She always seemed sad. I never saw her smile, for her husband, besides being idle, was a great tyrant to her and the children, as most idle husbands are. But he was something more than indolent or tyrannical, which, when she discovered it, made her miserable indeed. She had trouble enough before, but when she found out what her husband really was, her sorrow was greatly increased. Oh, idleness, idleness! Thou parent of many sins, thou nurse of every crime, thou dead sea that swallowest up every good thing, thou grave of every virtue, what wretchedness hast thou produced? Thou art a most fruitful source of temptation, a field where the enemy sows many tares. The idle man's heart is Satan's workshop, he travels so slowly that poverty soon overtakes him. He will not plough, and he begs in harvest. He is always looking for something turning up, instead of working to turn up something. It has been my lot to mingle much with every description of self-inflicted misery in the prison, the union, the night-house, and penitentiary, in the streets, in dens of infamy, in homes of squalor, filth, and rags. And I believe that most of the appalling wretchedness I have witnessed springs from idleness, especially amongst the young men and young women. I am grieved to say, but a conviction of its truth and a hope it may do good compels me to declare that seven out of every ten of the fallen women prowling about our streets are there because they are idle. They prefer a life of infamy to a life of honest industry. 
I have found homes of mercy for many such, but finding they had to work, they soon left. I have obtained places of service for them amongst kind people, who engaged them with the intention of helping in their reformation, but very few have remained, the places invariably being too hard. The injury inflicted by the curse of idleness on either man or woman can never be told. The discovery made by George's wife that so distressed her took place late one dark evening. She had often been surprised that he never wanted to go out when it was moonlight, but if the night was dark, he would frequently be absent till three or four in the morning. And she had noticed with grief that though their children were poorly clad, he never seemed to care for them, though he kept himself well clothed, how she could not tell. She had once ventured to ask him how he got his new clothes, but he replied with such a terrible oath, What is that to you? that she dared not ask him again. The night we mention, George went out about ten o'clock. It was very dark and stormy. His wife asked him where he was going, and begged of him to stop at home but he told her to mind her own business and not meddle with his. The moment he was gone she burst into tears and walked about the house almost wild with fear. She trembled from head to foot, and all desire for rest or sleep departed. Hour after hour she waited for his return, weeping, walking, sitting, kneeling, praying. For the poor thing sought help from him, who has promised to help in the time of trouble, who never turns a deaf ear to the cry of the sorrowful, who sees every tear and counts every sigh, and who mercifully invites the burdened and heavy-laden to come to him for rest. Hour after hour she waited, the candle died out, and the last embers of the flickering fire blackened in the grate. Still she waited. She often started, thinking she heard his footstep. At last, certain of his approach, she hastened upstairs, fearing his anger if he found her below. She quickly undressed and leaned out of bed, listening to hear his movements. He gently opened the door, went into the weaving room, and was there some time. What doing she could not tell. He then went to bed without speaking one word, and it was near noon the following day before he rose to begin weaving. A few days after, two constables armed with a search warrant came to seek for stolen goods. After a long search, they found several pieces of gold and silver plate hid under a flag. George had been housebreaking. The goods were owned, and he was sent to prison. When his time expired, he returned home, but not to the home he had left, 
for his disgraced wife and children had removed from the village to hide their shame. For several months after his liberation, George attended better to work, and the family began to improve in circumstances. His poor wife hoped the worst was past, but when the dark evenings came again, he was more than once out the whole night, and the peace he ought to have woven in a week was in the loom for a month. His idle habits had returned. One day the whole country was alarmed by the report that a dreadful robbery with violence had been committed at Hopwood Hall near Middleton. Again George was apprehended, and some of the stolen property found in his possession. At the time of this second robbery, I was a young lad and went to the free school in Red Cross Street, Rochdale. James, the youngest son of George, was in the same class. One evening he asked me to go with him to the prison in Rope Street to inquire if they would let him see his father. He could not get admission, but he put his mouth to the lock hole and called out, Father! Father! Is that you, James? replied his father. If it be... "'Tell your mother to come and see me tomorrow.' "'Do you want her to bring you anything, father?' said the poor lad, weeping. "'No, nothing but my nightcap,' was his father's answer. "'James lived near to me, and we returned home together. "'He wished me to call with him and tell his mother what his father wanted,' saying, I cannot tell her without crying, and she will cry too. The mother went the following day to see her husband, and called at the school for James on her return. Her eyes were red with weeping. She feared to go the highway, shunning everyone she knew, and we came through the fields, past the oaken road, Capterhood and the pits, coming out at Passmonds. Just behind the farmhouse at Pitts there is a brow. On the top of this brow James and his mother sat down, for she was greatly distressed. She had never spoken a word from calling at the school, but now her feelings overpowered her. She threw her arms round the neck of her sobbing child, and they both wept aloud. I stood a few yards from them, with tears running down my young cheeks. She sat there till it was dark, and when she arose, she took hold of both our hands, and we walked out the narrow, dark road in silence. A few words she said, only a few, but I have never forgotten them. My dear boys, never be idle, never steal. Pray to God to make you honest and good. And you, James, do be a good lad for your mother's sake. We both promised, and promised, I am sure, very solemnly. James, I think, is now in heaven, and I hope the writer, through the mercy of a dear crucified Saviour, is on the way there. 
George, with other two men, John Taylor and Thomas Lang, charged with the same robbery, were examined before the magistrates, and all three sent, heavily ironed, to Lancaster Castle, to await their trial at the next assizes. How many idle men have entered through the arch of the frowning walls of Lancaster Castle, entered too because they were idle? For indolence was at the foundation, at the very root of their crimes. How many idle men and women are at this moment pacing those narrow dens like wild beasts, or lying on their iron beds in sullen wrath, or writhing with remorse from the fiery stingings of a guilty conscience, or sinking in despair, or where the soul is not yet callous, thinking of homes by them made desolate, of relatives by them made to blush with shame, of wife and children made by them to weep and sigh in hopeless sorrow. O oh, indolence, indolence, thou proof and scourge of man's foul sins! What crimes have sprung from thee? I will remember the intelligence reaching Rochdale that George was condemned to death. And I also remember that day poor James, his son, could not eat his dinner, but gave it away to the boys in the school. Poor lad, he was in great trouble. His distracted mother set out for Lancaster to ask permission to have a last interview with her husband and to beg his body. The sorrow-smitten creature travelled on foot many weary miles on her melancholy errand. O virtuous woman, thou wert made like heaven's own pure and lovely light, to cheer life's dark and desert shade, and guide man's erring footsteps right. And when the last sad scene is past, tis woman weeps upon his bier, silent yet long her sorrows last, unseen, she sheds affection's tear. Both her requests were granted, and the night before his execution she was admitted into his cell. In those parting moments, when holding out the hand and looking into the moistened eyes of some dear friend whom we fear we shall never see again, the heart is often filled with irrepressible sorrow. To stand by the deathbed of some loved one, to hear their last whispered farewell, and witness their last sigh, has often bowed down the stoutest hearts. To take the last look of the closing grave, closing over the remains of those for whom our affections were stronger than life or death, has brought many to the border of madness. All this is sorrowful enough, but what must it be for a wife and a mother to take the last look and speak the last parting word to her husband going to be hanged? I believe in broken hearts. 
I believe there may be anguish so deep, so profound, that all human aid is utterly useless. But I also believe that there is one hand that can bind up broken hearts, and that hand sustained the wife of George. After the interview, she took shelter in a cottage house in the town for the night. She thought not of rest, but wandered about the room all night unable to speak. Early in the morning of that dreadful 20th of April, she heard the sound of many feet hastening to the castle to get a good place for seeing the death struggles of a fellow being. Drunkards, racers, dog-fighters, thieves and robbers, the scum and dregs of society, singing obscene songs, whistling, shouting, laughing and swearing, hundreds of the lowest and laziest characters gathered round the gallows. Only such could bear to look upon such a scene, for a man that can take pleasure in seeing another man hanged is not unlikely to be hanged himself. George was executed. After he was cut down, his body was handed over to his trembling, sobbing wife. She had a coffin ready, and hired a cart to carry his remains to Rochdale. When the crowd of idlers had dispersed, the coffin was lifted into the cart, and she began to retrace her steps the wearisome, dreary miles she had come. For a long time she walked alone behind the cart, walked until she was faint and footsore. Yet, weary as she was, she refused to ride, thinking it disrespectful to the dead. But her strength failing her, she reluctantly consented to be lifted into the cart. Before she reached her home the evening came on, and in the black and dark night, sitting beside the coffin containing the body of her dead husband, she passed the house in which they had lived when he committed the first robbery, the house and home of her children, and in the darkness arrived at the narrow court in town meadows from which George was taken to his grave. On my last visit to Kendall, to speak on behalf of the Benevolent Society of that town, I called at Lancaster at the request of a lady friend of mine to give an address to the poor mothers she had brought together for that purpose. Her father, a magistrate, had kindly obtained permission for me to look through the castle, and, after the address, in company with the lady, I went through the small door of the massive arch of that ancient fortress. The moment the door closed behind us, painful and gloomy thoughts, mingled with other feelings, came rushing into my soul. I was distressed to think that such a huge prison was necessary in any part of the world. Towering walls and battlements, firm as rocks, grated windows of gloomy cells, iron doors to deep, dark dungeons, bolts, bars, chains, and gallows, 
all told how terrible sin is in its consequences, even in this life. For Christ's redeemed children, sinners saved by grace, don't come here. Oh, how forcibly these engines of punishment for crime, these penal caverns, these doleful silent cells proclaim the glorious truth of the divine word. Godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of the life that now is. Again and again, while walking through the various scenes of this castle of misery, did I feel thankful for the blessed influence of that religion which had saved, protected, and guided me. For had it not been for this, I might have been long since found amongst the felons of my country. So, like Paul, my boasting shall be in Christ only. By the kindness of the governor of the castle, I obtained a copy of the records of the Assizes as far as related to the trial and sentence of George, and not till then did I know that he had two companions in the perpetration of the robbery, which was at that time a crime punishable with death. The record is as follows. George... John Taylor and Thomas Lang tried at Lancaster Assizes, March 1822. George, sentenced to death and executed 20th of April 1822. The other two were transported for life for a burglary at the house of Mrs. Gregg Hopwood near Rochdale in October 1821. I also requested the governor to show me the cell where George was confined the night before his execution. I entered. The heavy door was bolted and barred, and in darkness I sat down on the foot of the iron bed with strange feelings, feelings not easy to describe. I then went to the fatal door or window, looking from the castle to the churchyard, the opening where George stepped out, pinioned and bound, to look his last look on this world before he was launched into eternity. As I stood and looked on this mournful part of the old castle, mournful because of its painful associations, and knew that it was the spot where many, in a moment, and in the prime of life, had been violently sent from an erring to an unerring tribunal. I thought, and still think, that if their melancholy end could be traced to its true cause, it might be written on the graves of thousands besides George. He was ruined, imprisoned, and hanged because he was too idle to work.